Here are some main points on the board that I listed about Israel, and I hope this is visible to everyone. But one of the key points of emphasis throughout this section is what the Lord has done for you and how the Lord has blessed you and the land He will give you. So what God has done, what God will do. In light of what God has done and what He will do, our proper response is to love God, to love Him. And that we are called to do that three times in Deuteronomy 11, to love the Lord. A natural outgrowth of loving the Lord is going to be listening to what He has to say, obeying His Word. And then the, the, the chapter will emphasize the blessings if we are obedient and the curses if we are disobedient. So that's a general picture of some of the main points of emphasis uh, right here in Deuteronomy chapter 11. But let's read um, the first eight verses at least. You shall therefore... Love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Know this day that I'm not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, and his signs and his works which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to Egypt's army, to its horses and its chariots, when he made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them while they were pursuing you, and the Lord completely destroyed them, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, When the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them among all Israel. But your own eyes have seen all the great work which he did. You shall therefore keep every commandment which I'm commanding you today so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you are about to cross to possess it. So, he begins, love the Lord your God. We'll also see those words in verse 13. I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. In verse 22, for if you are careful and keep all this commandment, which I'm commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to hold fast to him. So this point, loving the Lord, emphasized in verse 1, in verse 13, in verse 22. You remember too, that God said in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So 
that is an emphasis not only in this specific chapter, but that is an emphasis in this whole section of Deuteronomy. We saw it the other night as we closed, uh, near the close of class, Wednesday night in Deuteronomy 10 uh, and in verse uh, in verse 12. But you shall love God and loving God leads to paying attention to his word. There are several different ways that God's revelation is described in verse 1. It is his, in the New American Standard Bible, his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, his commandments. This is just a way of referring to God's revelation, God's instruction, uh, God's message to us. Now, the other day I was asked a question by uh, one of you about what generation is this? What have these people seen and what have they not seen? How would you answer that question? What is it what do we say was the circumstances of Deuteronomy? How close, how much time they spent in the wilderness, all these things. Alan? They spent 40 or 38 years in the wilderness and here they uh, had they, they had seen the things that had gone on. The generations passed, the young ones had come up. They're being reminded, Deuteronomy reminds them of the law and they're a generation that still hasn't inherited the promise. They don't know all of its fulfillment, but they are to have faith. And that's one thing they lack. Okay, okay. But it's a good description. And this is at the end of the wilderness period. It's the last couple of months where they're in the wilderness before they go in to the promised land of Canaan. A generation has lacked faith. And they have died off. And as that generation's like faith and died off, how old were some of these people when they saw the events in the land of Egypt in the wilderness? Not at least not twenty, because it was the people twenty years and older who who died in the wilderness. There's a generation that has seen these things. They were not the adults at the time, but they've seen them. They're etched in their memory. But there has been a generation born in the wilderness of young people who haven't seen them firsthand. Does that sometimes make a difference? Does it make a difference whether or not we've seen something firsthand? It does. Okay. Now, a couple of you had your hands up to a statement, Bob, and then David is the order I think I saw them. But yeah, they, they would have been very young. But still, are there things from your days, your younger days, that are etched vividly in your memory that are very much a part of your worldview now? And, and I think it is true with these young people as well. David? A number of them only knew God providing food for them directly. Yes. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Some of them wouldn't, wouldn't uh, 
would have experienced manna every day of their life. I mean, this is the end of 40 years where he's been doing this. And um, so that's, that's, a good, that's a good observation. I hadn't thought of it in that particular way. But, so, but he makes a point here that some of these people, they know firsthand and they have seen firsthand God's works. But they're, the generation that's coming have not. In verse 2, know, the, know this day that I'm not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God, His greatness, His mighty hand, and His outstretched arm. Now, you know this, but your sons don't know. In verse 7, but your own eyes have seen all the great work which God had done. Now, part of the problem with this is uh, parents must be diligent in conveying this, God's works, to the next generation. But the fact that parents may be diligent in conveying it doesn't always guarantee that the children will get it. We will, we will see a statement that's going to be made later in the book. It uh, really doesn't fall into any of these categories. But a statement that's going to be found later in the book of Joshua. In Joshua 24, 31. In Judges 2, verse 10. That the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Who had seen the mighty works that God had done. But there arose another generation that did not know the Lord. And God is telling Israel right now, you know these things. Your son don't, your sons don't know them. Now, I ask you to look down in that list from verses 2 through 7. We talked about one of the main points, and if you want to number these, I've got five main things here in Deuteronomy 11. But we stated one of the key points of emphasis is what the Lord has done for the people. What are some things right there in verses 2 through 8 that the Lord has done? What he did to Pharaoh in Egypt. Okay. What he did to Pharaoh in Egypt is mentioned in verses 3 and 4. And he mentions this in a couple of stages. First of all, in 11 verse 3, he mentions what happened in Egypt. I take it that verse 3 may be a reference more to the plagues that devastated the land of Egypt. Verse 4, when it says what he did to Egypt's army, its horses and chariots, when he made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them, there he is referring not to the plagues of Egypt, but to the dividing of the sea and Israel crossing on dry land. Israel crosses on dry land. The Egyptians try to do the same thing and they are drowned in the midst of the sea. And this is emphasized as a mighty thing that the Lord had done. Then, in verse 5, he mentions what God has done 
in the wilderness. And David's already alluded to this in the fact that he said that some of these people had eaten nothing but manna. I say that. I don't know if they ate other things as well. But they've been given manna every day of their life. Maybe the best way to say it. They've been given manna every day of their life. And uh, so God did for them in the wilderness. And he mentions one thing specifically that I would not have necessarily thought of in this list. And what is that? David and Abiram, he mentions the judgment on David and Abiram. And also associated with this was Korah. And you read about this in number 16. He is emphasizing what God has done for them in blessing them in Egypt and in the wilderness, but also a warning of the danger of rebellion and disobedience as in the case of Dathan and Abiram. And what happened in that, they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses and Aaron? Hasn't he spoken through us as well? Moses and Aaron, you make yourselves, you put yourselves into prominent position. All the congregation is holy. And the Bible tells us that, that Moses said, if something unique happens here, now, if these men die a normal death, like all men, the Lord has not sent me. But if something unique happens, and the ground opens up and swallows them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you will know that the Lord has sent me. Moses no sooner finishes speaking, than the ground opens up and swallows Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. The next day, however, they rebuke Moses and they say, you've killed the people of God. Moses said, listen, if this happens, it's not me. It's the Lord. That was a warning to them. But all of these are things that God has done for them, in blessing them, in teaching them, things that they remember. But their children may not. And it is a difficult position to instill in our children things that are vital, but things that they have not witnessed like we have witnessed. But, but I would also say that, that there is probably more of this chapter that focuses on what God will do and the land God will give than what God has done. And the idea of the land is very important. And notice in verse 9, we're dealing with the promises that God is making of the land of Israel. Verse 9, so that you may prolong your days on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 12, which we will talk about more in a moment, is described as a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from beginning even to the end of the year. In verse 17, the end of the verse talks about you shall perish quickly from the good land which the Lord your God is giving you. 
in verse 21. So your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. Then verses 23 and 25 talk about driving up the nations and the Lord letting no man stand before them. And then in verse 20, 31, 31, you're about to cross the Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall possess it and live in it. Now, so I threw out, I mentioned a lot of passages there. But you see that God is saying, I've done all these things for you. And I am doing something, giving you something beyond this and giving you the land. What should be the appropriate response to God's blessings in the past and the present and God's promises for the future? The appropriate response is to love Him. Alan? Yes, exactly. The same things He emphasized. To love Him. To obey Him. Yes. And it is easy, as we see those people on that side of the cross doing that, reminds us it may be easy for us to do the same thing. Did you have a thought, Sarah? Yeah, in, in verse 5, um, what he did to you in the wilderness, that makes me think that it's not only what he provided, but also the judgments and the discipline that he provided with you disobeyed and here's a plague or here's a serpent or here's whatever. So that it, all three of those major examples involve... Mm-hmm. The wrath of God as well as his blessings. Yeah, that is a good point because that's true not only of Dathan and Abiram, but it is true in the land of Egypt. And most of God's mighty acts of salvation involve judgment. Um, I don't want to get off on this subject, but I want to illustrate something. Sometimes when we deal with the book of Psalms and we have... The psalmist praying judgment on the wicked. And people ask, can we pray those prayers today? How many of you have ever felt the world is wicked, the world's discouraging? How many of you have just prayed some point in time, oh Lord, come quickly? Have you, have you ever prayed? Do you realize when you pray that? You're praying not just for salvation, but for judgment on those who don't know him. So my point is, all God's mighty acts, it's a great day coming, but there's a sad day coming. God's mighty acts of salvation uh, do include that. And the other examples do include that. I would say, Sarah, that word can be translated for as well as to that preposition in verse 5. And, uh, but, but thank you for pointing that out because 
I haven't even focused on how that was translated there in the New American Standard and tying it with those incidents. But in verse in verse 9, he is giving them the land, but the thing that's going to ensure them living a long time in the land is if they are obedient and listen to God. In verse 9, that you may prolong your days on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land into which you are to possess it, to possess, to possess it, is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. But the land into which you are about to cross, to possess, is a land of hills and valleys and drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land from which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. Now, what is that saying? It's not like Egypt where you sow your seed and you water it with your foot um, like a vegetable garden. Well, one thing I found fascinating about Egypt, have any of you ever been to Egypt? Um, and, and I haven't firsthand either. But I, this did not, I did not see this until about 10 years ago. Do you recognize that today, even, most of Egypt is uninhabited? Most of Egypt is just desert. Something like 97% of people who live in Egypt live along the Nile River. That was true. That's true now. And some things seem to indicate that it was as much, if not more so, in the ancient world. Do you remember how in the time of Abraham, for example, when there was a famine in Canaan, they go to Egypt? Why do they do that? Egypt was not dependent upon rain for crops. They were dependent upon the overflowing of the Nile, which took place uh, from weather uh, in, southern, in, in central parts of Africa. And then the Nile would overflow and they would plant their crops along the base of the Nile. I think what he's saying in these verses, is Egypt was not dependent on rainfall the way that Canaan will be. Bob, you had a thought. Yes. Okay. Yes. Water it with your foot. That's, that's, that itself is kind of a weird expression, isn't it? You water it with your foot but but obviously he's you're kind of building around it and and planting it but um, in contrast to this where it's not dependent on rainfall as bob was saying this is going to be a land where it is dependent upon rainfall but i love the way in verse 12 the land is described a land for which the Lord your God cares. The word for cares 
in verse 12. And I don't know if you translate that way in all your versions. But the word for cares is actually the word seeks. It's the land the Lord seeks. And his eyes are always on it. His eyes are always on it. Um, you're used to this, but I confuse you sometimes with the board of writing all over it. But we're looking, talking about verse 12. Your eyes are on the land. Okay? This language that is used about God's eyes being always on the land is used in 1 Kings 9 and verse 3 and a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 16. That, both of those passages are talking about the temple which Solomon has just built. And God is asking for prayers to be heard there. Just as the temple is a holy place and God's eyes and God's heart is there. So this land is in a very real sense a holy place. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it. So God is giving them a land that is precious to him. A land uh, that is a good land. And but this is where verse 13 where we begin the text begins emphasizing here are the consequences if you listen to God and if you don't if you listen to God if you obey God if you love him and walk in his ways there will be blessing if you don't love him and you don't listen to him you will experience Disaster In verse 13, it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that he will give the rain for you, for your land in its season and early at the early and late rain that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle and you shall eat and be satisfied. Most of us take the blessing of rain for granted. If you were up last night, it may have seemed like a curse more than a blessing. If we were all farmers, we wouldn't take that blessing for granted. As, as one woman uh, said, I, said I, I think while we realize the foolishness of this, I think some of this, is, this affects our attitude. Somebody said how, how cruel it is for these people to go out and hunt meat, to kill these animals and hunt these meat. They need to just go to the store and buy animals like the rest of us to eat. Don't think about it too much if you don't want to. But, but my point is, we see the food in the grocery store and we don't think about the process of providing. That's my point. And my point in that is we take this blessing of rain for granted. But in an agricultural society, 
You couldn't do that. Wilson Copeland would go goes to China a couple of times a year. In the area that he goes, he's escaped any kind of problems because he goes to poor areas and rural areas. And everybody there is a farmer because that's all they had. And they said, well, if the rains come in, we, we do this and that. And he stopped them once and said, but if they don't, And there was a pause, and the people said, we don't have anything to eat. So rain, in giving the blessings of the covenant, is one of the first things that God says. That he will give you rain, the early and latter rain, and you're going to eat your grain, your wine, and oil. Now there are a lot of passages I can refer to. I want to refer to one in the Old Testament and one in the New. Look at Psalm 65 with me. Psalm 65. Psalm 65. Let's begin in verse 9. And listen to God's activity in the process of the land producing. Psalm 65 verse 9. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly entrench it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. And your paths drip with fatness. And the pastures of the wilderness drip. And the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks. And the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. All of this is praising the Lord who sends down the waters. Who sends down the rain to soften the earth. To cause the crops to grow, which provide for man and animals. Look at Acts 14. In Acts 14, Paul was preaching in Lystra. Some of them had been about to sacrifice to him because he healed a lame man. And when he and Barnabas realized what's going on, they tear their clothes. And they said, we are servants of the Most High God. We, we teach you to turn away from these vain things to a living God. But I want you to notice what, what he says in verse 17. Acts 14, verse 17. It says, he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did you good and gave you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Now, what I want you to notice is Acts 14, 17 is not directed to an Israelite audience. But still, he emphasizes the same truths. It is the Lord God that Paul is preaching that did you good. That gave you rain and gave you fruitful seasons and satisfied your hearts. It's God who did this. Every time we come back from the grocery store with many products, every time 
we sit at our tables to eat. It is a cause of rejoicing and thanksgiving at all he has given. Um, it occurred to me that in Egypt, the lack of rain was normal. Mm-hmm. It was just the part of yeah. that's life. But in Canaan, in the promised land, the lack of rain was often, perhaps always, a sign of judgment, a sign of yes. God's disfavor. So for the, that shift of mindset needed to occur, and that's part of the reason perhaps that the rain is emphasized so much. Yes, and it is emphasized so much. And in the curses of the covenant, the opposite's going to be emphasized. When you're unfaithful, your ground will be like powder, Leviticus 26 says. Looking at this, if we just look at this as historical facts, we're going to be lost along the way. Because it transfers, it's identical to us. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we are walking through the spiritual wilderness right now towards our promised land. Yes, yes. And the same requirements for us is for that he's given for Israel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mm-hmm. and mind. Obey his word. Yes. And blessings will occur if you do. Curses will occur if yes. you do not. Yes. And so his, his blessings are still the same. If we live in such a gifted society, we think his blessings are Rolls Royces and all that. It's not. It's the rain. Oh, simply. Yeah, if we don't learn to use it and cultivate it will be in the same. Yes. There are differences in specifics of what God asks of us, but everything that we see on the board, like mine inside, applies to us. Everything. Understanding what He's done, loving Him, submitting to His will, and the promises of blessings if we're obedient and and the warnings if we're disobedient. So you're right, these things apply directly to us. So I've been struggling with what, what does any of this matter to me? Like you're wrong. Right? Yeah. So going back to that grocery store example, somewhere around 80%, probably more, of what is Costco is full of is stuff from California, which by the way, doesn't receive any grain. That's all air. Mm-hmm. So, a very small proportion of what we get, what we eat, comes from here. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't, obviously, I don't know what our culture ought to be. But it feels like we're pulling the food from Egypt. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, 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 say, I, know, I know what you're saying in that... I, I, I was not aware of what you're saying that um, that anything's raised in California or raised in irrigation. I do know that California students would talk to me at Florida a lot and say that they they never heard thunder before they come to Florida. I mean, that was just a rare thing. Um, I would say on that though that if God had not provided the rain, they would ultimately have nothing to irrigate with. But I don't, 
I don't know the answers as far as all the the the, 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 the supply chain questions, but um, ultimately God is behind the whole process of of giving of giving us rain. Lloyd, who lived out there, may have an answer for us, right? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but now because of what is happening, they're getting a, I believe that we're getting it, certainly in California, they're getting a better perspective of God because there's a lake out there, Lake Mead, which feeds Hoover down. It is absolutely drying up. Uh, now they can see a water valve installed in 1971 that they had stopped using, but now because okay. water has Yeah, we're not good at creating those things, you know, uh, <laughs> creating a substitute for something so basic. And That is true. It's it's not that it's not that these blessings and curses will always look exactly the same. Uh, but the Bible does. Like when Jesus sets out the straight gate and the narrow way that leads to life and the broad way uh, that leads to disaster, he's setting out blessings and curses. But you but you're right. They don't look. It's not that God has stated. That automatically this means that rain will come on the land. Alan? God is going to bless them with abundance of all these good things. And, and Godliness has a promise for life that now is, but also it's the favor of God that will bring gladness into our heart. And that will be so much more than the gladness we receive from the corn and the vegetables and the, and the yeah. water and the oil. Yes, yes. God gives. Uh, a satisfaction of knowing we're right with Him that surpasses all of that. I wanted to tie, though, these verses too. And, and, and you all are familiar with these stories, but, but I want to make sure we speak them in this context. Um, I'll give you rain, I'll give you fruitful seasons, and y'all talked about a famine or drought uh, which is going on in the West things of that nature. What's the famine or drought you remember most readily in the Old Testament? Elijah. Elijah. First Kings 17 and 18. How long did it last? Three years. The New Testament says three and a half years. 
three and a half years with no rain, no dew. Now think about that. No dew either. Uh, Israel is dependent very much on dew. Why does that happen? Remember that in the time of Ahab, he has basically made Baal worship the national religion. He has built temples to Baal. He has built altars to Baal. Baal worship is the natural, national religion. Baal was a Canaanite god who was believed to send storms and rain. He is pictured on some caves as they have inscriptions that have remained. Baal is pictured with a lightning bolt in his hand. He sends rain. He sends thunder. In a time when they're worshiping Baal, who they believe sends the rain and thunder, Elijah the prophet of God comes and says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. There's not going to be dew nor rain till I say so. This is a conflict to see who it is who controls the rain. Who it is that is the God that is providing blessing. And, and the fact that they experience this devastating drought and devastating famine. In, in this case, it is a result of their sin. But it's a lesson that God is doing it. Now in Hosea 2, there is a picture. And in Hosea 2, it's verse 8, I believe. Verse 8 or 9, that specifically use the same three terms that are used here in verse 14. Grain, new wine, and oil. They attributed, the people attributed their grain, new wine, and oil to other gods. And God says, I'm going to take them away so that you might realize I'm the reason for them. Not you. The Lord is God. And God is showing Israel He is the one responsible for this. Okay. 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 Interesting. Interesting point. And yes, so so what Ryan said just adds on the fact that they are devoted to Baal, and and so it wasn't a given, even the land of Israel, that these blessings are from God. And, but God also warns them of something that we need to pay attention to, as we've emphasized before. In verse 15, he says, when God gives you all these things, now this is the danger of prosperity. When God gives us all these things and you eat and you're satisfied, then you turn away from God and serve other gods. Then you turn away. May God help us to remember in abundance he is the source of every blessing. We, we want to keep dealing with, in Deuteronomy with ways that we can be faithful during blessing. You will recognize verses 18 through 20 from Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. It's largely a repeat of these verses. 
You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. Make them the subject of your life. In verse 21, so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord your God swore to your fathers to give to them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. For if you are careful to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out these nations from before you and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. In 7-1, you'll, you'll fight nations greater and mightier than you. 9-1, God says, if you're faithful, I'll do this. And in verse 24, every place on which the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. Your border shall be from Lebanon from the wilderness of Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, as far as the western sea, there shall be no man able to stand before you. The Lord your God shall lay the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set your foot as he has spoken. Now, more could be said about that than we did. Most of that I, I, I have in my notes passages where we, most of these we've encountered before. Let me tell you something. I don't know if we're going to uh, have time to get any further. If you have a question about those, I'll give you in a second to do that. This is one point at where I would, I would quite um, readily argue that probably at least 90% of you are a lot better at than I am. Finding things on the internet. <clears throat> This is, this is your assignment, some of you, you people who know how to do things on the internet, okay? And you know who you are. <laughs> to find a good picture for Wednesday of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, okay? And these mountains that are mentioned in Deuteronomy 11, 26-32, they're going to stand on Mount Gerizim and pronounce the blessings. They're going to stand on Mount Ebal and pronounce the curses. And those mountains are going to be a constant reminder to them of the blessings of obedience, of the curses of disobedience. They were near the center of the land. And these geographical points these mountains are going to be markers and reminders of all God has done. He is in a, in a certain sense, these mountains are posted scriptures. Listen, here are the blessings if you're obedient. Here are the curses if you disobey. Now, also, I would encourage you to look for Wednesday. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim were near 
why or where in the land. You don't, I'm not asking for an answer now. I'm just asking you to think about that, to look it up. What, what, what are they near in the land? What, big, what cities are near? And how are those cities important in the biblical story? So look first at Deuteronomy 11, 26 and 32, how it's related. And But anybody have a question as we close? Anybody have a question? One that I can answer. Mine? Oh, just a comment. I just couldn't help but be reminded of the feast that God put in place for the Israelites. Basically, to cover everything that we've spoken about here, right? Passover, the harvest, yeah. the Pentecost, the Feast of Booth, uh, for the wandering. Yeah. So it's an annual reminder, even after Moses is gone, of everything that God did for them. I think that that's right. That's one of the ways God helps keep them, thank, help keep them faithful. The feast themselves are a constant reminder of what he's done. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your ideas. And uh, God bless.